0: Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. So, I appreciate the opportunity to share today. <laughs> and my subject He's is just calling down something from above. Oh, uh, blessings, <laughs> blessings, I hope. <laughs> is really answering the question does the bible teach that we can have a full assurance of salvation it is a big personal burden of mine that people enjoy their salvation and know for sure that they're going to have everlasting life go to heaven and into the kingdom and have that future with god and yet everywhere i go whether it's in the states or in new zealand as we even saw yesterday and other countries especially where the default position is, if I blow it, God's going to smite me into hell. Or I have to do something to get it back. So the paper that you supposedly read in context was a chapter for a book that I wrote, I participated in, in response to a book by Wayne Grudem, who could be the leading Calvinist theology theologian in the world. I don't know. His theology certainly seems to be the most popular. But he wrote a book criticizing what we call free grace theology, which I adhere to, that the gospel is absolutely free, grace is absolutely free. He wrote a book called Free Grace Theology, Five Ways It Diminishes the Gospel. And one of his chapters was on assurance. In the chapter on repentance, he criticizes me quite a bit, but I was asked to write the chapter on assurance. And reply to his view of assurance so we wrote a book called and not really necessarily naming him although in the footnotes i do uh, we wrote a book called uh free grace theology five ways it magnifies the gospel and so this is an adaptation of that it's about 50 pages long they told me to cut it in half <laughs> so just, if you want the whole thing if you want the whole thing go to amazon and get the book and you can read the whole chapter and i'm going to I don't like reading papers. I've been to theological conventions where, you know, they just read to me. And I like eye contact. I like engagement. I don't like this. But for the sake of uh, sometimes when you write things, you're careful. And you say, boy, I hope I say it that way. I'm not going to hope. I'm going to sometimes read and sometimes just talk. But, you know, we're fond of saying things like, I'm saved. I'm born again. Uh, I'm going to heaven. And then there's those who would say, well, wait a minute. Hold on. Have you examined your life what kind of life are you living are you living a holy life whatever standard they might have and and therefore bring into question your salvation there are those who teach that doubts are good for salvation A leading calvinist teacher that everyone would know if i named his name i don't like to name names but he says doubts are good and they use certain bible passages to bring that out but I don't see that that's in any way Paul's emphasis in the epistles, and you can ask me or challenge me about that, I'd be happy to engage with you about that. But it's a very, very important issue. Uh, we all want to live godly lives is the assumption that we make, um, but we may disagree about the issue of whether a person can be absolutely sure, and does a gospel of free grace, meaning that grace is absolutely free, there's nothing we can do to be saved. Therefore, there's nothing we can do to stay saved. If it doesn't depend on us at the beginning, then our eternal security, which is the objective truth that we are preserved in heaven forever by God, the subjective application of that is whether we're sure about that objective truth. Um, So is it grounded then in how we perform or what the scripture says? Uh, we probably ought to begin by talking about what do we mean by assurance, and the way I put it is, by assurance, of, by assurance of salvation we mean the subjective assurance of the fact of our salvation is secure in the present and future. It's the conviction that we are indeed eternally saved. And I'm talking here about an absolute or full assurance, because there are those who will talk about assurance, but they're not using it in an absolute sense. They're using it in a partial or relative sense. So I find no logical or biblical category for partial assurance. Um, It's something like insisting on an uncertain certainty. So if you say, um, did you unplug the heater before you left the house, sweetheart? Well, I think I did. I'm almost sure I did. She's not sure. I'm pretty sure. Not good enough for me. <laughs> Are you sure or not? So I happen to believe that assurance of salvation is very simple. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, John five twenty four, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. No qualifications there. We could go into a lot of reasons why people lack assurance of salvation. Uh, I think there's many reasons to it. We won't probably spend much time there, but introspective personality, falling into bad teaching, falling into sin, which always messes things up in our thinking. Um, They believe that they can lose their salvation, therefore they can never really be sure when they have it. It becomes a very subjective thing. Um, and maybe that you were never saved to begin with. That's a legitimate reason to doubt your salvation, and that's always a possibility. So there is one author, and this is where I'm mentioning the, the one who I'm responding to. One author argues that assurance depends on five things. He says a changed life, the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, the leading of the Spirit, a deep inner sense of reliance on... Which he also describes as a personal heartfelt faith in jesus christ for salvation rather than reliance on oneself and then fifth continuing in the faith so give someone those five conditions i can see why they might not have full assurance of salvation and to me that's a sad affair so this author says for example that assurance is complex but I, and then there are other authors, one local I understand, who wrote a book called Salvation is More Complicated Than You Think. And he states in that book, if I remember, and, and when I read it, he says, Jesus taught salvation by works. And then there are those who teach about uh, two justifications. There's initial justification and final justification. Initial justification through faith in Christ, but your final justification depends upon works that prove you are saved. So what I'm simply saying is there are a lot of systems of theology out there that inherently do, do not allow full assurance of salvation. Um, there are passages that are often referenced, I'm not going to mention them because they may come up in a question and answer time, so uh, you're, you think of those passages that you, you would imagine they would use to question a view of full assurance of salvation. Um, In all the literature I've read from teachers uh, about the necessity of good works for salvation, what I find lacking is a discussion about what is a good work. You have to have good works. Well, what is a good work? And everyone does good works. Cultists do good works. Satanists do good works. I mean, they feed their kids and pay their bills, right? So what is a good work? It has to have something to do with that which is done in obedience to God, to glorify God, and the power of the Holy Spirit, not in the flesh. Something like that has to be included in that definition. And so it doesn't help just to throw out that a person must have enough works to be sure that they're saved. And then if we agreed on what a good work is, now we have to then agree on how much good works or how many good works are enough to give a person assurance. So we now have to, quantify it. How do we know when they've reached the threshold of good works that will assure them that they are saved? And then are we looking at actions only? And how long do the good works need to continue? What about the works, uh, sins of of thought, like adulterous thoughts, murderous thoughts? So it, it gets very complex when we begin looking within for assurance, instead of looking outwardly to God and his truth. It's interesting to me that in 1 Corinthians 4, where Paul was being judged as to whether he was a true apostle or not, that Paul realized that the only true judge could be God himself. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 4, three through the first part of verse five. He says, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you, Corinthians, or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. Paul says, I feel like I'm innocent. I'm not aware of anything I've done wrong, but that doesn't acquit me. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Isn't that interesting that Paul says, I can't even judge myself. I don't have the objectivity to do that and yet these authors and theologians call upon us to look within, to see if we have a personal heartfelt faith or, uh, or the right attitudes, the right amount of works and so forth. So it becomes very complex and I would, I would posit impossible to have full assurance of salvation under that kind of system. So is full assurance possible? One. Reformed theologian, uh, Ashel Nettleton, actually he was a Puritan, I think, in early history of America, he said, the most that I have ventured to say respecting myself is that I think it is possible I may get to heaven. The Puritans in the United States used to call it, when someone professed faith in Christ, they would call him a hopeful convert, a hopeful convert. They were not ready to pronounce someone a convert until they examined his faith and that and for works and good works, and those good works had to persevere to the very end of his life or else they were just a professing Christian, not a possessing Christian. So this is what one of their leaders said. I, the best I could say is it's possible I may get to heaven. I don't feel comfortable living that way. I don't see that, that kind of system or model in the scriptures either. So we're talking about absolute and full assurance. Um, Some say that we can have weak assurance or strong assurance based on the amount of works that we have. And that's where this leading theologian comes and says. He says if you have a little bit of works, you can have a little bit of assurance. If you have a lot of works, you can have a lot of assurance. But never ever does he say you can have full assurance because you have five conditions to meet. And I give a dictionary definition of what assurance is, and it, it doesn't contain uncertainty in those definitions. I think I've included that in your version of the paper. I'm looking at my longer version here. But I would, I would firmly insist that God's word teaches full assurance of salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, Paul made that statement without conditions, without exceptions. He said that of the Ephesians to them, and, and he was sure that if they, by faith, trusted in Jesus as Savior and understood the gift of God, that they were saved. Um, He doesn't cite any other conditions. But, as one author suggests, he says, the question is not whether we believe the word of God as a sufficient basis of assurance. He says, the truthfulness of Scripture, quote, the truthfulness of Scripture does not answer the other aspect of assurance. The question, how can I know? That I have personally believed these things. To which I respond, Where in the world does the Bible ask that question? It doesn't ask that question of us. And the question doesn't even make sense to me. I know when I believe something. I don't have to say, Do I really believe that? I know when I believe it. Because my idea or, or understanding of faith is that it is being fully convinced of something that is true or trustworthy. To be Persuaded that it is true. And I think it's used that way in the scriptures. So I don't need to be pers- uh, persuaded, uh, I don't need to question myself, am I persuaded that the lights are on in this room? Well, I know that the lights are on in this room. Do I believe the lights are on? Do I really believe it? Well, I'm the only one that would know that. So of course I know whether I believe it or not. So and another thing I would observe is that when we speak of salvation, Many times you'll find that those who hold a um, less than full assurance view of a less than full assurance view that they would um, they attach qualifiers like this person does a heartfelt faith or a sincere faith or a real faith or a genuine faith or uh, or they on the opposite side would say it, you can have a spurious faith or a false faith or an insincere faith or a head faith or a sign faith or a superficial faith and yet we search the Scriptures in vain for any adjectives attached to faith or belief. Well, faith maybe as a noun, like a strong faith, but that's not talking about salvation. When it talks about salvation, we don't have those qualifiers. You don't really believe something, you believe it. You don't sincerely believe something, you believe it or you don't. And those, those modifiers are absent in the Scripture. I think what we need to understand in this discussion is that it's not faith that saves us. Don't stun me. We're saved through faith, but we're saved by grace, the gift of God. Faith is how we access the gift of God, you with me? So technically speaking, we're saved through faith by Jesus Christ. Jesus saves us, faith is how we access his free gift. By way of illustration, we could say a Muslim believes in Muhammad and his faith is placed in the Muslim God and Muhammad as his prophet for salvation. Or the Buddhist believes in Buddha. Or the yoga, uh, the Hindu believes in Krishna. What is it that differs from me believing in Jesus Christ? It's not belief. They truly believe. I truly believe. Faith is faith. What is different is the object of faith. And that's what makes all the difference in the world. There's only one way to believe. You either believe something or you're not, or you don't. But there are some theologies that like to make faith like a superpower that's given to us by God and some supernatural gift or understanding, where faith, in my opinion, is simply a response to what we think is an objective truth. So, it's not faith that saves, it's faith in the right object of faith. Jesus saves. You can have all the faith in the world in Buddha, but he's not going to save eternally the way we understand salvation. So, some people like to put saving faith in a special category with some special power added to it, but it's a simple understanding that something, a conviction that something is true. And I think that God's promises assume assurance of salvation. Um, we read over and over the promises of God. We read that they're irrevocable in Romans 11:29, um, The believer's faith assumes assurance. I'm just kind of scanning this to see what I want to emphasize. It's foolish to claim that you know you've believed. Is it foolish to claim that you know that you've believed in Jesus as Savior? It'd be more foolish to claim that you don't know whether you believe in Christ as Savior. Who else would know? <laughs> Who else would know what you believe? You know, and God knows. Um, I happen to befriend uh, a British Reformed theologian named Michael Eaton. Perhaps you've heard of him. Um, he taught at Westminster Chapel. He was discipled by Martin Lord Jones, R.T. Kendall, and, and then he read James 2.5 about the Poor, being rich in faith, he moved to Kenya and worked in the slums of Kenya. And so when I was passing, passing through Kenya, I met with him, I interviewed him. I think his video is available on our website and interviewed him about some things. But also had him over to speak at one of our Free Grace Alliance conferences. Brilliant man, brilliant encyclopedic memory. But he criticizes his Reformed brothers for not having a full assurance of faith. And he himself didn't, and he told me, face to face, he says, I can tell you, he knows guys by first name like J.I. Packer, and he doesn't say N.T. Wright, he calls them Tommy Wright. I mean, this, this guy knows all the big guys, Stott, John Stott. He says, you would be surprised how many of these famous Reformed theologians have come to me in private and said, I'm not sure 100% that I'm saved. He says, I can't tell you their names because you would know them, but I can't tell you. But that's what he confided in me. His own story is very interesting. He did his doctoral work on the book of Galatians and, and the idea of assurance from Galatians. It ended up in a book in America. The title is No Condemnation, A New Theology of Assurance. I think the British have a different title for it. But if you look up Michael Eaton, he passed away several years ago, you'll find... Uh, maybe start with that book, No Condemnation. He did his doctoral dissertation on Galatians, but he told the story to me about how he would read the book of Galatians at night uh, to his wife while they were going to bed. Sounds very romantic, but (laughs) to each his own. he He said he saw his wife's countenance change as he went through the book of Galatians night by night. His wife became happier and happier and happier because he could see that Galatians was offering assurance of salvation because it took them out from under the law and human performance and, under, and put them under grace. So he did his doctoral dissertation on that book, and, and he differs from his Reformed brethren on this issue of assurance. He says, quote, The Reformed tradition has always made, such, made much of assurance of salvation. For Luther and Calvin, faith is assurance. Subsequent, Theological reflection drove a wedge between initial faith, which may or may not include full assurance of salvation, and developed faith, which reflects upon itself and reaches assurance of salvation. So he's saying, excuse me, that Luther and Calvin taught that faith was, assurance was of the essence of faith. To believe something meant that you were convinced it was true or sure that it was true. So when I look at the New Testament, New Testament writers assumed assurance. I don't find any author questioning his readers' salvation. Now, I know that there are verses that you're going to suggest might propose that, but I don't see it. No author invites his readers to believe in Christ as Savior. No author of the epistles invites his readers evangelistically to believe in Jesus as Savior. The authors use exhortations that apply to Christians, not non-Christians. The authors convince even sinning Christians our true believers to the saints in Corinth. Now, here's how you've messed up. You're carnal. Okay, he never questions their salvation. The authors do not signal challenge uh, changes uh, when they're addressing one group and then all of a sudden addressing another group, which is the way a lot of people approach Hebrews. Yeah, he's talking to Christians here, but in the warnings, he's talking to non-Christians. But the author never signals that. In fact, he includes himself in the warnings. If we sin, so. I don't see that in the writings. New Testament exhortations require assurance of salvation. It's based on the fact that we're sure we're saved, that the exhortations make sense and allow the motivation to keep them. I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy which we talk about in Romans 1 through 11 that you're surely saved God's promise is irrevocable that includes the individual and the nation of Israel and to the gentiles anyone his promises are irrevocable therefore offer your bodies a living sacrifice so on a practical level assurance of salvation frees people to serve God to sacrifice for God we work from security, not towards security. If that makes sense. And I could go on with other verses. I might have listed them there in the article. So, what makes full assurance possible? I think it's the understanding of what grace is—an unconditional gift of God that is never deserved or earned or merited. <clears throat> Let me say this about Dr. Wayne Grudem's book, and I. Not attacking him personally. This is what he wrote. I've corresponded with him. He's a very nice fellow. Um, but he didn't listen to us. <laughs> he didn't make any modifications. He gave us the manuscript before he published it. We suggested all these things that he was misrepresenting, but he didn't change them. Anyway, if you look at his book, now he, I think he's revised it since, so I have not, I have not read the revision but in my book review that's on my website under book resources, book reviews, I point out the fact that if you look at at faith, he lists 11 pages in his subject index. If you look at repentance, which he really gets down on me for about 10 pages on, you'll find 25 pages in his subject index on repentance. Look for the word grace in the subject index. Not there. That clues me in that clues me in where he's coming from. The only time he uses the word grace is when he's criticizing free grace theology. So without a proper understanding of grace, you get off on the wrong foot, and uh, we offer no possibility for assurance. So I would, cl- I would say that assurance is based on the objective testimony of God's word. To believe God's word is to believe God himself using the logistical... The, the, Literal. Literal. No, the um, syllogism. Oh, syllogism. God is true. God gave us his word. His word is therefore true. Something like that, right? If God's word is true and God says that you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life, then it's not a matter of questioning his word even. It's a matter of questioning God. Sometimes I shift a conversation from someone who's telling me I'm not sure about my salvation. I say, well, have you believed what the Bible says, John 3.16, whoever believes in him has everlasting life. Yeah, but I'm still not sure. And sometimes I'll rephrase the question, well, who is it you're not believing? It's not what are you not believing, but who are you not believing? Because I want them to say and understand that they're questioning God and his word. his integrity, a God who cannot lie. So the promise of God through Scripture is that we can have eternal life as Luther said, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reasons, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything or go against conscience, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I also cite the Belgian Confection in the longer article, which yeah, that's something about um, this particular theologian that I'm responding to and many others as they... Rely quite heavily on the confessions and creeds, uh, and, and yet they talk about sola scriptura, and, but rely so heavily on the, the confessions and creeds. Hebrews chapter 1, uh, 11 verse 1, tells us that faith by its very nature includes assurance. Um, I, I'm sure about it if I consider it true and trustworthy. My belief may be misplaced, but that doesn't mean my, I don't have faith. It simply means it's in the wrong object. I can believe that one plus one equals three. I can believe with all my heart that the world is flat. But I have, uh, my faith is, is strong in both either belief, but it's the object of faith, an unworthy object of faith that puts me in error. But First John 5.13 says that we can know that we have eternal life. And what father would not want his children to know that they are in the family? So what's the role of subjective evidence? Well, many people use, uh, uh, Dr. Grudem had a five-legged stool, we might say, because many people use the three-legged stool example of assurance. They say that one leg is good works, another leg is the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit, and the third leg is the Word of God. I would suggest to you that the only leg you need is the Word of God. And the other two would be evidence, not proof. But the Word of God is proof that we can have salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. And sometimes I think that's misunderstood because it says, All things are made new, but wait a minute, I still sin. So what is that verse talking about? In context, and I deal with this in various places in my website and book, It's speaking of a new perspective, a new way of seeing who Jesus is. It's not saying that everything about us is new because we still have old remnants of the old man. So, are doubts about salvation good? There are those who say that it's good to question your salvation. Um, And they, they get into theological systems that teach that. But I would suggest that introducing doubts about salvation puts people, uh, cripples people, handicaps them, undermines their peace, their peace of mind, their peace of heart. Think about how Paul introduced and closed his letters, grace and peace, grace and peace. Grace first and then peace. You can't have peace without grace. So important, Not not just a polite greeting, But so important, theologically, to understand those words in that order. There are some go-to texts that you're going to ask me about, like 2 Corinthians 13, 5. So I'll answer when we get to that portion. Um, About examining yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. But I think it is crippling for people to go through life not sure about their salvation. And there's some theological systems that promote that, so let me try to wrap it up a little bit. But the evidence from Scripture is that even even sinful groups like the Corinthians and and the church or the Galatians who were going towards the law, the Hebrews who were heading that direction, uh, were still considered believers by the authors who wrote to them. It makes a great difference to have full assurance of salvation uh, in how we approach life, how we approach our love for God. Is he a fickle God who will kick me out of his family if I do something wrong? How can we live under that kind of insecurity? How would a child live under that kind of insecurity if that's the way it was at your home? I don't see that as a healthy spiritual environment. When people face death, can they face it confidently? Just to... a couple of weeks before I came here I've been working with a couple who both are in hospice care actually she's been waiting to die for a year she's been wanting to die for a year she's wanting to be with Jesus because she's suffering so much and she died a couple of weeks before I came here I've never seen such strong faith but she knew absolutely for sure that she was going to heaven and she absolutely knew for sure she wasn't perfect too and her, but she was a dear sweet lady I remember going into surgery with a very frail old lady. And she said, if I don't make it through, I'll see you in heaven. What a wonderful thing to be able to say that. And she didn't make it through. So I'll see uh, Nobuko, Japanese lady, Nobuko in heaven. In our personal practice of godliness, it's important to know that we can confess our sins and he will forgive us our sins. And that's a matter of fellowship, not salvation. I take 1 John as a book of fellowship, not a book of tests of salvation. That's a very important part of this whole conversation. What are some of the views that undermine assurance? You might not like this, depending on where you're coming from, but first of all, let's talk about Arminianism. An Arminian would say, correct me if I'm wrong, but an Arminian would say, I'm sure that I'm saved today because I'm living a good life. But if they were honest, they couldn't say that I'm sure that I'll be saved eternally because they don't know if they may do the big one that messes things up. So they have a present assurance, but they can't really have an assurance that follows them into the future. The Reformed Calvinists, the strong Calvinists, would say everyone who is elect has eternal security and is secure. The only problem is we don't know who the elect are. Well, someone talked to me just a week ago and said, I'm a Calvinist and I'm sure I'm going to heaven. It was a polite, friendly conversation. I said, oh, tell me why are you sure? He said, because I believed in Jesus as my savior. I said, that's great. But what if at the end of your life things go south and something terrible happens and you curse God and die? Can you predict the future? Can you predict that you'll never do that? Because if you do that, it proves that you're not a Christian. I like what Eaton said. He says, it seems that Arminians must not assume the continuance of their faith and scholastic Calvinists must not assume the reality of theirs. In the one case, awareness of sin threatens the Arminian's confidence about continuance in the faith. In the other case, awareness of sin threatens confidence about the reality of salvation. Again, one notes how the developed form of Reformed thinking has a tendency to introspection. And he goes on to say, Is it not a fact of history that the Calvinist has tended to have less assurance of salvation than the Arminian? The Arminian is at least sure of their present salvation. As a result of the high Calvinist doctrine, the Calvinist often doubts their present salvation and thus has less contented frame of mind than their evangelical Arminian friend. That's coming from a Reformed Calvinist who still claims to to be a Reformed Calvinist until his death. And then there's this theology called Lordship Salvation, which can come from either the Arminian side or the Calvinist side. And based on what they say it takes to be saved, which is a full commitment of your life to Jesus as a master of all of your life, full surrender to him, denying yourself, taking up your cross, following Jesus, loving him above your father, mother, brother, sister, with all those conditions of discipleship attached to the gospel, It's, in my opinion, impossible for the view of Lordship Salvation to offer anyone full assurance. The leading teacher and author of the book on Lordship Salvation was asked by a friend of mine, are you 100% sure you're saved? And he, he said 99%. That's the best he can do. I don't know why not 98, but it was 99. Pastoral lessons and applications. I'll just close with the main points here. Full assurance of the grace... Gospel of grace gives Christians peace. I already said that. The full assurance of the gospel of grace allows for confident evangelism. How can you share the gospel and say, let me tell you that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you'll go to heaven. If you're an honest Arminian, honest Calvinist, you can't say that. Think about that. Only if you have a clear gospel of grace can you make someone that promise. So perhaps that's why evangelism is not done so much with some of these groups Um, the full assurance of the gospel of grace frees people from legalism from or from having to be fruit inspectors and look at people's do they have enough fruit to prove that they're a Christian Um, let's look at their works and so there's an emphasis on outward behavior and people will always learn to conform to outward expectations and then finally the full assurance of the gospel of grace provides the best basis for Christian maturity and i've basically already said that you can't grow forward confidently if you keep looking back wondering if you're saved or have enough good works to be saved or if you have a personal heartfelt faith or whatever the conditions are so that's basically what i've had to say kind of breeze through that i'm sure you may have questions and i um, I'm just going to turn it back over to Jeff and see how he wants to moderate all of that. Well, thanks, Charlie. Good. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.